You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Born in New York in 1901, Frank Hayes dreamed of being a racehorse jockey. Though he was short in stature, he was too heavy for the job, so he found himself working as a groom and a stable hand instead. Sadly, Hayes wouldn't live to see himself ride a horse to victory. But he would ride a horse to victory. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off. U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Le Mans, Grand Prix, Bathurst, the Indy 500. Car races are big business all around the world. But there was a time when people believed these new horseless carriages were a novelty item, too flimsy for such an activity. They weren't all that wrong. But in 1908, a race was organized to prove otherwise, in which six teams of drivers tried to be the first to get from New York to Paris. Considering the state of automobile technology at the time and the lack of overall road infrastructure, this was no mean feat. Only three of the six competitors would even complete the course. The race was a 169-day ordeal and still stands the longest motorsport event ever held. Starting line was set up in Times Square on a gray overcast 12th of February. The six driving teams competed under four flags, Germany, France, Italy, and the U.S. The French set off with the highest number of cars, as three distinct automobile manufacturers were participating. The event brought almost a quarter million people onto the streets of New York City to witness the start of the race, considerably more people than attended the very first New York New Year's Eve ball drop, which also occurred in 1908. The starter's gun fired at 11.15, 15 minutes late. Mayor George McClellan was supposed to fire the pistol, but he wasn't there on time, and apparently an impatient bystander did the job for him, and the racers took off. Whether that bystander used a starter's pistol or just a gun he had on him has been lost to history. This would be the first of many unexpected challenges. The planned route would take the racers across the U.S., north through Canada, into Alaska, then over the frozen Bering Strait into Siberia, across Russia to Europe, finally stopping in Paris. Now add together two recently acquired pieces of information. They're starting this in mid-February and planning to drive across Alaska, Siberia, and all of Russia. Good luck with that. Drivers needed to stop often to repair their cars. They even used locomotive lines when it was impossible to find a road. Not the rails themselves, though. The American car straddled the rails, bumping along on the ties for hundreds of miles. Do you know what shocks were like then? No, you don't, because there weren't any. 
the Italian team complained that that was outright cheating. The car that would go on to win had a four-cylinder, 60-horsepower engine and a top speed of 60 miles per hour. Cars of the day offered very little in rider comfort or fancy amenities like a roof. They drove around the world 15 hours a day in winter in open-topped cars, many of them without windshields. Antifreeze hadn't been invented yet either, so the radiators had to be drained every night. While most teams were made of a driver and a mechanic, some teams included journalists, and one brought along a poet for some reason. The racers in the French Suzerre Nodin dropped out after only 96 miles with a broken differential they couldn't repair. Another French team lost a man after they became stuck in the snow and the teammates began to fight. They were about to duel with pistols when the mechanic fired his assistant, an Arctic travel expert whose knowledge and skills they would really wish they had later. Not even halfway across the U.S. yet, the Italian car had mechanical trouble, and the driver tried to cheat by putting the car on a freight train. He abandoned that plan when a photographer caught him in the act. The car's owner then sent him a telegram, Quit race, sell car, come home. Probably just as well for that driver that telegrams charged by the letter or he would have really gotten an earful. The American team, driving a Thomas Flyer, took the lead when crossing the U.S. The team managed to arrive in San Francisco after 41 days, 8 hours, and 15 minutes, with the second-place car 9,000 miles behind them. This was actually the very first crossing of the continental U.S. by an automobile in the winter. The race route then took the drivers to Valdez, Alaska, but on a ship. The American driver, George Schuster, wasted no time investigating the Valdez-Fairbanks Trail in a single-horse sleigh, and concluded the only way you could get a car across Alaska would be to take it apart and put it on a dog sled. The Parisian Race Committee abandoned the idea of Alaska and the Bering Strait and ordered the Americans to return to Seattle. The new plan was for the cars to sail to Vladivostok and then drive to Paris from there. While the American team were making their way back to Seattle, all the other teams got on the boats to Vladivostok. The Americans lost even further time when they couldn't get their Russian visas in order. The flyer had been the first to arrive at the Pacific coast and would be the last to leave, weeks behind the competition. In fairness and to their credit, the race committee decided that the American team would be given an allowance of 15 days, meaning the remaining teams could beat them to Paris by two weeks and still lose. Plus, the race committee penalized that team that used a train. The driving resumed from Vladivostok, but by that point, there were only three teams left. The German Protos, the Italian Zust, and the Flyer from America. Now, not an American flyer, because a little red wagon wouldn't do very well in these conditions. And what do these cars all look like, anyway? I'm glad you asked. I put pictures of them in the Vodacast app, the partner for today's episode. Vodacast is sincerely really cool. It is a brand new podcast player that makes it easy for creators like me to put tons of bonus content up and for listeners to see it all in one place. It even syncs to the audio, so like the thing I'm mentioning right now, you open it up, boom, there's the picture. How cool is that? 
Now, I'm still learning to use it, and it's still early days from the app, but I recommend everybody get it from the App Store or the Google Play Store and check it out today. Vodacast, V-O-D-A-C-A-S-T. So anyway, the drivers that you can see on the Vodacast app agreed to start again evenly matched. They had extreme difficulty finding petrol in Siberia, leading the French driver to try to bribe the other teams to let him ride on one of their cars, so he could at least be in a winning car. This prompted his sponsor to pull him from the race. The two remaining teams faced another set of major challenges, passing through the tundra of Siberia and Manchuria. The spring thaw had set in, which turned the Asian plains into a seemingly endless swamp. Progress measured in feet per hours, not miles. The drivers had to push their cars as much as drive them, and even resorted to occasionally hitching them up to teams of horses to pull them along. And they got lost. A lot. The racers couldn't ask locals for directions because no one spoke Russian. Roads and maps were unsophisticated and hard to come by, and if you took a wrong turn, you could expect to lose up to 15 hours. Thankfully, once they got closer to Europe, road conditions improved and the race sped up. The Germans arrived in Paris on July 26, while the Americans were still in Berlin. But the 15-day allowance for the Americans and the 15-day penalty for the Germans meant the flyer had a month to drive to the neighboring country. The American team arrived in Paris on July 30, 1908, having covered approximately 16,700 kilometers, or 10,377 miles. Even though the victor had been declared, the Italians drove on and made it to Paris in September of 1908. The victory meant huge recognition for Schuster, who in 2010 was inducted into the Automotive Hall of Fame. If you're ever in Reno, Nevada, and I guess don't want to go gambling or do anything fun, go and see the flyer in the National Automobile Museum. You can probably kiss that sponsorship goodbye. Speaking of sponsors... A lot of my friends have had babies in the past year or so. Uh, first children, all of them I've noticed. So I'm definitely going to recommend that they all check out the Healthy Postnatal Body Podcast with postnatal expert Peter Lapp. Peter answers all your postnatal health and fitness-related questions and does interviews with a wide variety of expert guests. Genuine experts. No goop stuff, okay? Subscribe to the Healthy Postnatal Body Podcast on your favorite podcast player. Learn more at HealthyPostnatalBody.com and be sure to download your free postnatal health guide. Here on Your Brain on Facts, I may not have all the answers, but if your question is how can I find a sponsor for my small podcast, I do have the only answer you need. Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace that connects podcasters and businesses, many of them small businesses, to create ad campaigns that work for both parties. This is not a situation where you're going to have to have 25,000 downloads per episode before anyone will even look at you. Podcorn is easy to use, free to set up, you retain all of the rights to your podcast and everything else, and you get to tailor the ad campaign in a way that works for you and the sponsor, whether it's a host-read ad or an interview. You can get started today by going to podcorn.com. 
It's like popcorn, but for podcasts, podcorn.com. The first Olympics held in the U.S., the 1904 Games in St. Louis, were part of that year's World's Fair, and they stand unchallenged for the title of most bizarre Olympic events ever. The flagship event, the Marathon, was conceived to honor the classical heritage of Greece and underscore the connection between the ancient and the modern. The outcome was so scandalous, the event was nearly abolished for good. A few of the runners were recognized marathoners. The rest could be described as assorted. There was a man who did all his training at night because he had a day job as a bricklayer, ten Greeks who had never run a marathon before, two men of the Suana tribe of South Africa who were in St. Louis as part of the South African World Fair exhibit and who arrived at the starting line barefoot, and Cuban mailman Felix Carbajal, who arrived attired in a white long-sleeve shirt, long dark pants, a beret, and a pair of street shoes. He'd raised the money for the journey to America by running the length of Cuba. Upon his arrival in New Orleans, he lost all that money in a dice game and had to walk and hitchhike to St. Louis. For the benefit of several listeners, that's a distance of 1,100 kilometers. The race was run on August 30th, starting at 3.03 p.m. If you know anything about daytime temperatures, that's what we around here call hot time. Heat and humidity soared into the 90s. The 24.85-mile course involved roads inches deep in dust, seven not insignificant hills varying from 100 to 300 feet high, some with brutally steep ascents roads strewn with cracked stones, and, most importantly, roadways that were still open to traffic, trains, trolley cars, horses, and people walking their dogs. On that 25 miles, there were only two places where athletes could secure fresh water, from a water tower at mile 6 and a roadside well at mile 12. Cars carrying coaches and physicians drove alongside the runners, which kicked up impenetrable clouds of dust. William Garcia of California nearly became the first marathon's first fatality when he collapsed on the side of the road and was hospitalized with hemorrhaging. The dust had coated his esophagus and trachea and ripped his stomach lining. Len Tao, one of the South African participants, was chased a mile off course by stray dogs. Felix Carvajal trotted along with his cumbersome shoes and billowing shirt, making pretty good time, even though he would repeatedly pause to chat with spectators in his broken English. A bit further along the course, he stopped at an orchard and snacked on some apples, which turned out not to have been in great nick. Suffering from stomach cramps, he lay down and took a nap. Cramps also plagued runner Fred Lors, who, at the nine-mile mark, decided to hitch a ride in one of those accompanying automobiles, waving at the crowd and his competitors as he went. Thomas Hicks, the bricklayer, one of the early American favorites, begged his two-man support crew for a drink of water at the 10-mile mark. They refused, instead sponging out his mouth with warm distilled water. Purposeful dehydration was actually considered a positive thing 115 years ago. And to be honest, I can remember my little league coach not wanting us to drink too much water. 
Seven miles from the finish, his handlers fed him a concoction of egg whites and strychnine, the first recorded instance of drug use in the modern Olympics. Back then, small doses of strychnine were used as a tonic or stimulant. Hicks's team also carried a flask of French brandy, but decided to withhold it from him until they could gauge his condition. Speaking of condition, Lawyers must have recovered from his cramps because he did get back out of that car only a few miles down the road. One of Hicks's handlers saw this and ordered Lors off the course, but he kept running and finished with a time just under three hours. The crowd roared and began chanting, an American won! The stunningly interesting Alice Roosevelt, 20-year-old daughter of President Theodore Roosevelt, placed a wreath upon Lors's head and was just about to lower the gold medal around his neck when one witness reported, Someone called an indignant halt to the proceedings with the charge that Lors was an imposter. The cheers turned quickly to boos. Lors smiled and claimed he never intended to accept the honor. He finished only for the sake of a joke. You know, it was just a prank, bro. Our man Hicks, pumping with strychnine, had grown ashen and limp. When he heard that Loris had been disqualified, he perked up some and forced his legs to keep going. His trainers gave him another dose of strychnine and egg whites, this time blessedly with some brandy to wash it down. They fetched warm water and soaked his body and head. Also not recommended practice these days. He began hallucinating, believing the finish line was still 20 miles away. In the last mile, he begged for something to eat. Then he begged to lie down. He was given more brandy and more egg whites. Finally entering the stadium, he tried to run, but was reduced to a graceless shuffle. His trainers carried him over the line, holding him aloft while his feet kicked back and forth, and he was declared the winner. It took more than an hour and the care of four doctors for Hicks to feel well enough just to leave the grounds. He lost eight pounds during the course of the race and declared... Never in my life have I run such a tough course. The terrific hills simply tear a man to pieces. Hicks and Lors would meet again at the Boston Marathon the following year, which Lors won fair and square. Bonus fact, the 1904 Olympics also saw gymnast George Iser win six medals, three gold, despite his wooden leg. You know who else is pretty cool? Folks who review their favorite podcasts. This one comes off of Apple Podcasts from Theo from Compton, who says, One of my favorites. Your brain on facts is truly a treasure. I have a lot of downtime as a tower crane operator. I listen to at least 35 different podcasts faithfully. This one is top five in my rotation, if not number one itself. Moxie's voice is soothing, her research is amazing, and the show flows without a hitch. Little did you know, that phrase took five takes. I'm also the host of my own podcast, Black Men's Book Club, and I have to say that I admire Moxie for all the hard work and dedication that she puts into this show. Five stars. Thank you so much for that, Theo. So listeners, while you're playing around with Vodacast, search for the Black Men's Book Club. And remember, if you want to hear your opinion read on the show, leave a review on your podcast player of choice or at podchaser.com, which is like the IMDb of podcasts, and they finally just now got an app of their own. Reviewing shows doesn't have the algorithmic magic some hosts believe or claim that it does, 
But what does is sharing your favorite show, whether that's word of mouth, social media, just boosting whatever the show posted. Sharing the show remains the single best way to help a podcast. Of course, if you have the wherewithal to do so financially and want to receive bonus content and ad-free episodes, you can join us at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts alongside great folks like Dana and Rita and those amazing people who have increased the amount of their donation, like David, Eric, and Robin. Hopefully I'm finally on the far side of what has turned out to be a 10-week acute period of my chronic idiopathic pulmonary condition. By the way, know any good diagnosticians in the Mid-Atlantic area? Let me know. So the bonus material schedule and the regular show schedule should, hopefully, smooth out soon. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. While navigating a race is usually pretty straightforward for humans, how do homing pigeons figure out where they are? A researcher at the U.S. Geological Survey, Jonathan Hagstrom, has come up with a novel suggestion. It involves pigeon races. In Europe, and to a lesser extent the U.S., pigeon racing has been a passionately followed sport for which birds are carefully bred, raised, and trained. All of the competing birds are taken to a common, distant location, released together, and the return trip to their loft is timed. 90% of the pigeons will find their way home within a few days, and eventually almost all do. On Sunday, June 29, 1997, a great race was held to celebrate the centenary of the Royal Pigeon Racing Association. More than 60,000 homing pigeons were released at 6.30 a.m. from a field in Nantes in southern France, flying to lofts all over southern England, some four to 500 miles away. By 11 a.m., the majority of the racing birds had made it out of France and were over the English Channel. 
The fastest birds should have arrived at their lofts by early that afternoon. But they didn't. A few thousand of the birds straggled in over the next few days, but most were never seen again. The loss of so many birds was a disaster of previously unheard proportions in the pigeon racing world. One bird could get lost, a dozen, a hundred maybe, but tens of thousands? A theory would later emerge. At the very same time the racing pigeons were crossing the channel, 11 a.m., the Concorde supersonic airliner was flying along the channel on its morning trip from Paris to New York. In flight, the Concorde generated a shock wave that pounded down to the earth, a carpet of sound almost a hundred miles wide. The racing pigeons flying below the Concorde could not have escaped this intense wall of vibration. The birds that did eventually arrive back at their lofts were actually lucky that they were more tortoise than hare. They were still south of the channel when the Concorde and its shock wave passed over ahead of them. It's theorized that the racing pigeons locate where they are using atmospheric infrasound that the Concorde obliterated. Low-frequency sounds can travel thousands of miles from their sources. That's why you can hear distant thunder. And pigeons can hear these low-infrasounds very well. What sort of infrasounds do pigeons use for guidance? All over the world, there is one infrasound— the very low-frequency acoustic shock wave generated by ocean waves banging against one another. Like an acoustic beacon, a constant stream of these tiny seismic waves would always tell you which direction the ocean is. This same infrasound mapping sense may play an important part in the long-distance navigation of other animals, too. It could explain how monarch butterflies in the U.S., are able to find one small area in Mexico, or how Brazilian sea turtles are able to find their way home on tiny Ascension Island a thousand miles out into the Atlantic. Even more valuable to a racing pigeon looking for home, infrasounds reflect off of cliffs, mountains, and other steep-sided features of the Earth's surface. Ocean wave infrasounds reflecting off local terrain could provide a pigeon with a detailed picture of its surroundings both near and far. The enormous wave of infrasound generated by the Concorde's sonic boom would have blotted out all of the normal oceanic infrasound information. Any bird flying in its path would lose its orientation. The incident is referred to as the Great Pigeon Race Disaster. The Concorde would stop flying six years later, but for reasons completely unrelated to the pigeons. Not every race goes to the swiftest. One was meant to go to the friskiest, or at least the most fecund. Charles Vance Miller practiced law in Ontario for 45 years until his death in 1926. He was also a shrewd investor, which meant there was a nice fat bank account before his fatal heart attack. A lifelong bachelor with no close family, Miller wrote up a will that was as mischievous as he had been. For examples of Miller's character, one of his hobbies was dropping dollar bills on the sidewalk to watch the expressions of people trying to be slick picking it up. In death, Miller outdid himself. He wrote, This will is necessarily uncommon and capricious, 
because I have no dependents or near relations, and no duty rests upon me to leave any property at my death. And what I do leave is proof of my folly in gathering and retaining more than I required in my lifetime. Among his bequeathments, he left a Jamaican vacation home to three men who could not stand the sight of one another. He tested the resolve of teetotalers by leaving them shares in companies involved in brewing. His shares in the Ontario Jockey Club, an August body whose membership drew from society's upper crust, Miller left those shares to unsavory characters the existing members would find repellent, as well as to two opponents of racetrack gambling. Thus he parceled out most of his estate to test what Ted DiBiase told us in the 80s, everyone has a price. The only real variable to nail down is the exact dollar value where principal takes a hike. But it was clause number nine of his will that caused the most fuss. It was a legacy that triggered a race to conceive. Simply put, he directed the residue of his estate be given to the Toronto mother who gave birth to the most children in the 10 years immediately following his death. The money wasn't exactly chump change. By the time the race came to an end, the total prize was worth $750,000, scaled up for inflation, talking about 12 mil. What came to be called the Great Stork Derby, or Darby, depending on where you're from, was on, especially at the three-year mark when the stock market crash of 1929 ushered in the Great Depression. You might have heard of it. It was in all the papers. With so many people experiencing unemployment and poverty, the pot of gold offered by Charles Miller was enticing, even if the attempt meant creating a lot more mouths to feed. Newspapers across the country followed the fortunes and fertility of the contestants closely. It was a welcome distraction from grim reality, a sort of reality show of its day. Five women led the pack, mostly lower income and already with a slew of children, and they quickly became household names. Those five of most fruitful loins had delivered 56 children between them, 32 of which had been born by 1933. From Time Magazine, Christmas Eve, 1934. Last week in Toronto, each of the two leading contenders for the prize money bore a child. Mrs. Frances Lillian Kenny, 31, gave birth to a girl, her 11th since the race began. Mrs. Grace Bagnato, 41, gave birth to a boy, her ninth. While citizens followed the race keenly, the Ontario Provisional Government was not as entertained. It called the Maternal Marathon the most revolting and disgusting exhibition ever put on in a civilized country. You want to see the face of a woman who's given birth to 10 or 12 kids in the span of a decade? You know where I left it. It's on the Vodacast app. I'm really having fun playing around with the Vodacast app, and I hope as you're trying it, you're having fun using it too. Now I can share all this extra peripheral stuff without having to go to a separate page. And you know my squirrel brain, there'll probably be some bonus stuff that's not even germane to the episode. The deadline for the baby birthing was midnight on Halloween 1936. On October 19th, the Daily Journal World of Lawrence, Kansas, carried a story that started... A hesitant stork circled uncertainly today at 1097 West Dundas Street with what looked like a $750,000 baby in his well-worn bill. 
However, the productive resident of that address, Grace Bagnato, was soon disqualified from the derby. Her husband turned out to be an illegal Italian immigrant, and that didn't sit well with authorities. Everything old is new again, eh? Lillian Kenny, who had ten births under her belt, no pun intended, was also tossed out of the event because she had the misfortune to deliver two stillbirths, and they were declared not to count. Pauline Clark also gave birth ten times during the competition period, but several of her babies were conceived out of wedlock, an activity deeply frowned upon at the time, so they were also out. As the final whistle blew, four women were tied at nine babies each, Annie Smith, Alice Timlek, Kathleen Nagel, and Isabel McLean, each received $125,000, about $2 million today. Lillian Kenny and Pauline Clark were given consolation prizes of $12,500 or $20,000, so that's not nothing. Nothing being exactly what Mrs. Bagnato got. When Miller's law partner found the will, he thought it was a joke rather than a binding legal document. Others thought its purpose was to tie the legal system in knots for fun or some satirical purpose. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, the question of whether Miller intended his will to take effect or merely to amuse his lawyer friends remains in doubt. The Ontario government, which had earlier huffed and puffed about the unseemly stork derby, tried several times to have Charles Miller's will declared null and void saying it was the duty of the government to stop this fiasco. A few of Miller's distant relatives popped up to challenge his will, hoping to score a jackpot. But the will and its stork derby clause held up, and eventually the Supreme Court of Canada said it was valid. It's pleasing to report that the winners handled their legacies sensibly and were able to buy homes and provide education for their children. The winners, that is. We will never know how many women started the Stork Derby and then dropped out when it was clear they couldn't catch up. By the end, at least two dozen mothers had produced at least eight babies that we know of. This placed an enormous burden on the families suffering through the Great Depression, with 25% of Toronto families receiving government support as of 1935. The prize money was a direct result of Miller's capricious nature. He once missed the ferry between Windsor and Detroit, which annoyed him to such a degree that he bought the property that would eventually be used to construct the Detroit-Windsor Tunnel, which put the ferries out of business. And it was money from this investment that largely funded the Stork Derby. Drop me a line on social media, Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts, Poc, TikTok, Moxie LaBouche, and let me know that you'll think of that next time you drive through the Detroit-Windsor Tunnel. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. When Frank Hayes was given the chance to fill in for another jockey, he had to lose a lot of weight fast, like 10 pounds in 24 hours, which he probably did by not eating or drinking and very possibly sweating or purging. Doctors then and now think that's why he died of a sudden heart attack in the second half of the race. He didn't fall out of the saddle, though, even after his horse crossed the finish line first. He was declared the victor and remains the only jockey to have ever won while dead. The horse, Sweet Kiss, was immediately retired because no one wanted to ride a horse nicknamed Sweet Kiss of Death. 
Remember, you can always find the script and the source notes at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. And remember, if you need a new phone menu for your business, e-learning module, you name it, moxielabouche.com for lightning-fast corporate voiceovers. Because I one time got struck by lightning. love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.